Well, good morning, everyone. It, my name is Allison Pinches, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Courtright, and it is good to be with you this morning. We are week three into a series on the book of Ephesians, and this book, if you haven't noticed already, is so dense, so I just want to encourage you to have a Bible on hand. Maybe it's on your phone or whatever, uh, but I think it will be helpful for you to be able to have the words in front of you to be able to continue to refer as we look at this passage this morning. So a few weeks ago, I asked our neighborhood group to share a strange thing you may have found yourself doing in the midst of this pandemic. And at the Pinches household, our recycling keeps disappearing and there are two culprits. So Jordan, my husband, tries to use various recycled containers to expand our bird feeder into some kind of contraption that is impenetrable to the squirrels. And Zoe, my daughter, has been creating things out of the recycling. And one of her favorite projects is this telescope. Every toilet paper roll that is finished is carefully saved. And let me tell you, the day we finished the paper towel roll was very exciting. And as much as I enjoy this telescope, it's not actually that helpful for seeing. Because when I look through it, I actually only see this small fraction of all that is out in front of me. And in our passage from Ephesians today, the Apostle Paul is dramatically expanding. He's stretching our view, taking this view and turning it into this, helping us to see what's out there. It's like he's saying, you've been looking through this and I want you to see this. The Apostle Paul spent two years in the city of Ephesus, and you can read all about his adventures in Acts chapter 19. The city of Ephesus is a huge city, and uh, it's the epicenter of worship for the Greek and Roman gods. During Paul's time in Ephesus, many people became Christians. But now a few years have passed, and Paul is writing this letter from jail. Last week, as we considered what Paul wrote at the beginning of chapter 1, we were reminded of our identity in Christ. And Pastor Alex talked about what this means, particularly in terms of being blessed, adopted, redeemed, chosen and sealed with the Holy Spirit. So Paul continues right from where we stopped last week. Would you join with me in prayer as we hear these words together? Father God, you long for our vision and experience of you to be expanded, just like Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. And as we read and consider your word today, would you take our understanding, knowledge, our love and experience of you and stretch it? Would you enlarge and grow this knowing of you? And would this expanded knowing be for the expansion of your church and for your glory? For we pray this in your name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power? 
God put this work, power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. This passage is actually a prayer, and Paul is letting the Ephesian church in on what he is saying to God about them. He begins with a beautiful affirmation of who they are. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul praises their faith and their love. In the New Testament, faith is trust. It's loyalty, it's allegiance, or as Tim Mackey from the Bible Project puts it, it's who you are grabbing onto for dear life as the best thing going. Ephesus, the city where the church is located that Paul is writing, uh, has this massive temple in it. It's a temple for Artemis, one of the gods of Greek mythology. And this temple was so massive, it was actually one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. They were serious about Artemis in this town. There were an abundance of ideas about magic and luck and who to call on for good fortune. So amidst this hectic spiritual background, the Ephesian church have chosen to be loyal to the God of Israel. They are aligning themselves with him, putting their trust in him, and that is what Paul praises in naming their faith. Secondly, Paul talks about their love for all God's people, or as the Greek word translates, most holy thing or saints. I imagine he them hearing this read out loud, and Caladora looks over at Leonidas and thinks, most holy thing, saint? Ha! He took all the best figs at dinner last night. But just like everything else in this passage, by calling them saints, Paul is expanding their understanding of what their community actually is. God's sacred people set apart. Paul commends them on their agape love for one another, the kind of love that is a commitment to put the well-being of another person ahead of my own well-being. Court Wright, like Paul wrote to the Ephesians, I think that God is delighted with your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. We have amazing things happening in our community right now. We have way more people gathering in small groups and neighborhood groups and doing a tremendous job of caring for one another. We have people making sure that those in our congregation unable to access our online service receive a CD or paper copy. I've had more people than I can remember offering to provide meals for others and so much so that one of our members has started keeping a list of all people's food sensitivities so that information is just on hand when someone wants to provide a meal. One neighborhood group delivered cookies to their seniors who were unable to join them online. Another person called me saying they had bought a box of fresh fruit and asked who they could deliver it to. One small group collected some funds and shared some grocery gift cards with several community members. When I touch base with all of you small group leaders, you are all very aware of how your members are doing and if there are particular needs. One couple helped another couple move recently, which requires some creativity in our social distancing time. Our Sweet Mamas group found out about a new mom who's not part of the church or even part of the Sweet Mamas group, and they put out a request for meals to their community, 
And within minutes, they had three people offering help and they ended up providing a whole week of meals for this new family. And all of what I've just said has been in within the last few weeks alone. In addition to your care for one another, I have been saying over and over, I really don't think I or we as a staff team could have more encouragement and support from our community. Week after week, I open my inbox to find emails of thanks and encouragement from so many of you. And I know I'm not alone in saying like Paul does, I continue to give thanks for you. But you might notice that after that affirmation, Paul goes right on into praying for them. We usually think of praying when something is wrong, but Paul is praying to spur them on, to add fuel to the fire. They are showing tremendous faith and allegiance in the midst of a spiritually chaotic place. And Paul says, there is more. They are loving each other sacrificially and in ways that serve one another and not their own needs. And Paul says, there is more for them. Paul cannot stop giving thanks for them, and yet he says, there is more. And Courtright, you have great faith. You are demonstrating profound care for one another, and there is more for us. Verse 17, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know... And before we get on to what Paul wants them to know, let's talk about how he wants them to know it. A spirit of wisdom and revelation, the eyes of your heart enlightened. Paul says this kind of knowing is both about knowing with our heads and with our hearts. It's knowing as in wisdom, intelligence, thinking and reasoning, but it's also the knowledge of experience, desires, the knowledge of relationships, like how you know a parent or a spouse. Paul wants them to know something with every fiber of their being. There's something critical that we totally miss in a Western context and English translation. And I'm grateful to our own Bill Gillespie for calling my attention to this. In English, we have only one word for you, whether you are speaking to one person or to a whole group. But the Greek here for you or your is plural, meaning that he is speaking to the church collectively. But what's interesting to note here is that the your is plural, but the heart is singular. Elsewhere, he speaks about their hearts, meaning individuals would come to personal understanding. But here, he is saying that he longs for your plural collective heart, for them as a church to come to a new understanding. So what is this that Paul so passionately wants them as a community to know with every fiber of their collective being? I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. So Paul wants them to know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. Hope, inheritance, power. The Greek word for hope is interesting as it's used for both the anticipation of something good and something evil. The anticipation of something evil, well, that's fear. The anticipation of something good 
is hope. But this hope is more than positive thinking. This hope looks back to remember their first love, to remember why they joined or started this community in the first place. It says that they are about something beyond their present circumstances. As Tim Mackey says, life's meaning is found in hope and not in circumstances. No matter how difficult life may be or how chaotic the world around us is, we find our meaning and purpose in the hope of Jesus and in the hope that in, in him all things will be made right. There are times when I have found it difficult to hope. And in those times, I have found it tremendously helpful to borrow hope from people around me. Remember, he's speaking to them about their collective hope and not just the hope of individuals. And as individuals, we can lose hope. But when we are part of the body of Christ, we can say, I'm having a really hard time believing that right now, but I know you have that hope and I trust you. So I'm going to borrow some of your hope. As a community, we bear with one another because our hope is in a reality beyond our current situation. And he who promised is faithful. John Stott says this about the hope of our calling. The expectation which we enjoy as a result of the fact that God called us to altogether new life in which we know, love, obey, and serve Christ. Enjoy fellowship with him and with each other. And look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed. This is the hope to which he has called you. And Paul prays that our eyes may be opened to know it. The glorious inheritance further invites us to look forward. The Old Testament tells us that the Israelites were the ones to receive God's inheritance, to receive all that he would pass on to them. The radical news of the New Testament is that this inheritance is not just for Jewish people, but for anyone of any race who puts their faith in Jesus. This would have been absolutely mind-blowing. And you can see Peter's whole worldview being completely rocked by this in Acts chapter 10. The people that they are supposed to separate themselves from for centuries are now invited to the party. And more than invited to the party, they are family, fellow children of God, set to receive his inheritance together. But Paul saves his real zinger for last, power. The immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. One commentator says Paul nearly exhausts the reservoir of power denoting terms in the Greek language. Paul has a lot to say about power. Remember the telescope? Here is where he is saying, quit looking through that thing and see the view. Know the power that I'm talking about. Paul wants to expand our understanding of how big this power is, how powerful it is. The synonyms he used to describe it describe the capability and potential of the power, the effective or operational power, the power exercised in resistance and control, the bodily strength and muscular force, the inherent vital power. And that same power or energy is what raised Jesus from the dead. The power that is not just the force behind our biological life, but the power that defeated death and invented a whole new kind of life, a whole new resurrected life that is entirely different kind of life than there was before. This innovative, life-creating, death-defying force. Paul says, that's what I'm talking about. And... 
you already have it. That power is available to you. Now we have some aversion to power, some baggage with power, and we resist the idea of someone or even ourselves having a lot of power. And frankly, some of that aversion is with good reason. We don't have to look too far to find disastrous, tragic, and horrifying examples of people who abuse their power. And this abuse of power happens within the church as well. When power is about serving our own self-interests, the results are disastrous. This is not the kind of power that Paul is talking about. That is not resurrection power. Resurrection power is not the power to do whatever we want. It is not the power to make all things better for us. It is not the power to make things easier for ourselves. Andy Crouch writes that we need a new vision of power, and he redefines power as the ability to create and introduce a new cultural good. For Christians, the exercise of power means helping people fulfill their God-given call to be creators of culture. Crouch says that true power, power is about the flourishing of other people. That is resurrection power. That is the power that sees dead things come to life. But that kind of power does not come from scrambling to the top. Rather, it comes from being about the flourishing of others. Often for those of us with power and privilege, it is using those things to leverage the position of another who does not have the same status. Tim Mackey describes this kind of power in Jesus, who gives up status and authority to absorb and take the hit on behalf of others and to allow the sin of others to crush him. This is the power to reverse life into death. This is resurrection power, the power to bring dead things to life, all of this power is God's power, but he invites us to participate in his resurrection power with him. We get to be a part of the power of seeing people and places and communities come to know new life, seeing his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. As Wendell Berry puts it, to practice resurrection. I don't remember a week in my life when examples of power were more prevalent than this past week. And we're going to talk about a couple of those stories as we consider what this resurrection power means. But first, we're going to talk about a story when this and a time when this doesn't happen. So this week, the Juno award-winning Canadian rapper, singer, and songwriter Shad shared this story on his Instagram feed. A certain world leader held up a book today for a photo op and gave a smug speech threatening violence. In that book, there's a story important enough to be recounted three times. In that story, a rich young man asks the teacher what he needs to do to enter the kingdom of God, and the teacher answers that he should obey the commandments. The rich young man says that he has done this, and so the teacher says that he should sell his possessions, give to the poor, and follow him. At that point, the young man walks away saddened at the thought of giving up his enormous wealth. And that's when the teacher famously says that it's easier, easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That it is impossible with man and only possible with God. And Shad continues, Many interpretations exist for this story, but what I find most fascinating and relevant to the past few days is that the rich man's inability to give away his wealth and privilege is primarily framed here not as a detriment to the poor, but to his own soul. 
MLK, James Baldwin, and others have said similar things about white supremacy, explaining that racism is a disease that may kill blacks from the outside, but it destroys whites from the inside out. Which got me thinking, maybe wealth and privilege damage our souls, our humanity, our true well-being by disconnecting them from the soul of the world. Which is to say, by disconnecting us from human suffering. When our wealth or privilege are substantial enough to insulate us from the realities of the world, the realities of systemic racism, for example, we are essentially living a lie. A lie can never free our souls. We can only be free when we get in touch with the truth. Perhaps there is a deep sense of belonging, a true feeling of allyship and connectedness that only exists on the other side of spending our wealth and privilege for others. Spending our wealth and privilege for others, for the good of our own souls. Resurrection power. You've likely heard the name George Floyd in the last week and a half as the African-American man who was killed by a white police officer on May 25th in Minneapolis. Floyd was from a neighborhood known as the Third Ward in Houston, and Christianity Today describes him as, quote, a mentor to a generation of young men and a person of peace, ushering ministries into the area. You see, Floyd used his influence his character and credibility to pave the way for pastors and local churches on the outskirts of the neighborhood to be able to begin ministering to the neighborhood. One of those pastors said, George Floyd was a person of peace sent from the Lord that helped the gospel go forward in a place that I never lived in. The platform for us to reach that neighborhood and the hundreds of people we reached through that time and up to now was built on the backs of people like Floyd. Floyd had a choice of how to use the power and influence he held in his own neighborhood. And in giving credibility, protection, and access and trust to these local pastors and ministries, he used his power to pave the way for, the work, for their work in Ward 3 and to give them access that they couldn't have had without him. That is the kind of power we are talking about. Power that uses the position and influence you have for the sake of others. For their flourishing. And thanks to Big Floyd, as he was affectionately known, and others doing this, this ministry in Ward 3 flourished. In the wake of his death, protests have sprung up in dozens of cities in the United States and around the world, and there was a march here in Guelph yesterday. In some cities in the States, the protests have not always been peaceful. And law enforcement, who hold tremendous power, have had difficult decisions to make about how to respond. In many places, though, a new trend has begun, and there are now many reports of police officers taking a knee alongside protesters. This is a powerful symbol. Colin Kaepernick, an NFL player, started this take a knee movement as his silent protest and he would take a knee during the singing of the national anthem to call attention specifically to police violence against African Americans. For the police to adopt this stance alongside protesters is an incredibly powerful symbol. They are choosing to use their power to say we hear you, we are listening, and by kneeling we stand with you. The power these officers have has the potential to take away life or to help life flourish. 
Once again, in this upside down kingdom, this use of power is actually the way to life, to resurrection life. The resurrection power that Paul is talking about is the power that advocates for others, the power that takes empty spaces and turns them into gardens to grow food, and the power that gives someone a new future that is not dictated by their past. I have a number of friends who are these incredibly beautiful, godly people, but when you hear their story, it doesn't add up to who they are now. They have gone through horrific things, and yet they overflow with God's peace, joy, love, and presence. They are not the sum of their experiences. Their experiences were sending them in one trajectory, but because of the intervention of God's resurrection power, who they are today is something entirely different. Next week, we'll have the privilege of hearing one of those stories as Helen Duhamel shares her testimony with us. At the end of our passage, Paul expands our understanding of Jesus and his authority. In ancient times, there was an idea that evil spirits lived in this space above the earth. So Paul is clearly positioning Jesus as the most powerful when he says Jesus is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places and is far above any other powers, far superior to any other rule and authority and power and dominion. Remember, the Ephesians were obsessed with appealing to all kinds of powers they believed to be the source of good fortune. And Paul wants to be very clear that Jesus is far more powerful than anything real or imagined, anything that has been or ever will be. He has ultimate power and authority. When you can call on and invoke the name of Jesus, when you cling to him as the best thing going, he really is the best, most powerful thing going. And then Paul says something extraordinary about the church. In the Old Testament, the temple of God was where God met with his people, where his presence dwelled. And in Jesus, we learn that there is a whole new temple. His body is actually the temple of God, the place where God dwells, the space where God meets with his people. And then we learn that Christ's body, the temple of God, is actually the church. God's presence has moved from the temple to Christ's body to the church. The Old Testament talks about God's presence filling the temple. The temple is filled with God's glory. That is his presence, essence, and power. And Paul is telling us here that the new container, the new vessel or receptacle for God's filling glory, presence, essence, and power is none other than the church. The church is the container which God pours in and fills with his spirit, his presence, and his power. This is not a picture of individuals being filled by the spirit and coming together for worship. No, this is talking about the collective gathering of the church being the place filled with God's presence and power, and that we are filled as we inhabit Christ's body, the church. The church is exploding with the presence of God. The church is full of his resurrection power. Paul is not asking here for something new to be given to the church in Ephesus. Make no mistake. Paul is praying that they would realize, understand, become aware, experience, know the immeasurable greatness of the power they have already been given as believers. This is a message for the corporate collective church and it's a message for the local church. Paul's writing specifically to the local church in Ephesus. 
And this is a message for our collective church, the larger body of Christ to whom we belong, but it's also a message for Courtright. It's a message God is revealing through his word here in Ephesians, and it's a message God in his grace has revealed to us specifically. About a year ago, a member of our congregation was right here in the sanctuary during worship one Sunday morning. And we were all together standing and singing, and we were singing the song, Holy Spirit, Come. We were inviting God's Spirit to be present. As we sang the line, Come, Lord Jesus, Come, this member of our congregation saw Jesus walk down the aisle to the front of our church, right to the center where we usually stand to preach. But no one was there at the time because we were all singing. And Jesus was so bright, he was hard to make out. And his brightness was light, but it was somehow also a bright mix of colors, like colors we haven't even seen on earth. In this person's vision, Jesus knelt on the floor at the front of the church on one knee, and he put his right hand on the floor. And then there was this sort of wash over the room, this anticipation for what's to come. And then from his hand, bright light, ribbon-like light explode all over the room, into people, through the air, all around, like this big wave washing over, and it stayed. This person experienced a hum in the room, like the kind of hum or buzz you might feel when you get really close to a power station. This hum or buzz permeated the air. And then the person looked and could no longer see Jesus, but the buzz, the power, the hum, the ribbons of light stayed and stayed and stayed for some time. For weeks following that experience, when this person came back into the sanctuary during worship, the air was thick again, so thick it was like wading through that buzz, that power, G, power, light, and energy. It seems that what Paul's saying here and the gift of this vision for our church points to this vision being true for court right now. Resurrection power, filling, permeating, buzzing. What more does God have for us? What more might happen with this resurrection power? What transformation? What fruit? What flourishing? What life? The clearest application for us is to adopt Paul's prayer as our own, to pray together that we might know in every fiber of our collective heart the hope to which he has called us, his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. Let's use Paul's words to pray as we close. We pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we come to know him, so that with the eyes of our heart enlightened, we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. Amen.